It's Wednesday, November 11th, 2015, and you're listening to episode 383 of Fear the Boot, a show about tabletop role-playing games and a little bit more. Running time for this episode is 20 minutes. Welcome to Fear the Boot. My name is Dan. This is actually the second episode that we have recorded this week. I got together with uh, Chad and Julia and John, and we recorded one yesterday, and we talked about all kinds of good stuff. We talked about John's experience lately with some competitive games and also some games that kind of got him thinking about empathy and how they're evolving his view, uh, making him a little bit less of a harsh man when it comes to gaming. Unfortunately, we had a technical issue that was... Apparently, entirely my fault was a completely new one. Uh, When we make a recording, there's something that we have to set called the sampling rate. And the sampling rate basically determines the quality of the audio by virtue of how much information about the audio is actually recorded into the, the waveform that becomes the show. That's a little bit of a simplification, but it's basically right. And normally we record these shows at 44,100 hertz sampling rate. Well, for some reason, and I don't even know how this happened, a setting that I have never flipped intentionally or accidentally in nine and a half years of doing this show got switched from 44,100 down to 8,000. And the end result is that the recording sounds like a poorly received AM radio station. I don't think I'm going to delete that audio. I don't think I'm going to throw it away. But I think what I'm going to do here is at some point, and I'll probably come back with a more definitive answer next episode, I'm going to dump it out there as like a negative episode or just some kind of excess content. So if you want to hear what we said, you can, because it is still perfectly comprehensible. You can understand what we're saying. It just, the sound quality is terrible. And I try to keep Fear the Buddha Notch above that. But once again, if you want that content, if you want to hear what we had to say, about competitive gaming and and player interaction and such, then I will put that out here at some point for you guys to consume. So two other things, and then I'm going to get down to the topic I'm going to discuss with you, because uh, since I used up my fellow host time last night on a complete fail, I'm here by myself tonight. The first thing is the contest is still going on for those Battletech dice. I'll put a picture of them again in the show notes if you have not seen them yet or don't remember what they look like. And all you have to do to win them is there's a website I'm going to link to. You go there, you give us your email address, you put in a plot idea for a Battletech game or, quite frankly, any generic sci-fi game, as long as it could theoretically work for another sci-fi setting. So I don't know per se like I want a Star Wars plot, all right? But if it's generic enough, you think it would work in a sci-fi setting because maybe you don't know a whole lot about Battletech, that's still perfectly fine. And then in a couple of weeks, once we've got those in, you guys are going to vote on which ones you want to win, and the people that win will each be getting a set of these metal, really nice enamel-painted Battletech dice. The other thing I want to point you guys to is there is a new podcast that's out, and it's not directly about gaming. It's actually about library sciences, literature, And a lot of geekery as it relates to literature, they talk about science fiction and comic books and things like that. And the reason that I want to point you guys to this is because there's a bunch of people on there 
that I'm sure are wonderful human beings, but I really don't know them. But our good friend, Scott Bonner, uh, who's I've gamed with, he was part of my family gaming group, and I hope we'll be here again soon when I get that group going again. He's a good friend of the show, been with us and supporting us for a long time. And he is also the director of the Ferguson, Missouri Library, which was the one that stayed open during all of the chaos that was going on. They have put together this podcast. It's called Library Land. As of this recording, I believe there are four episodes in. If you are interested in seeing what they have to say about literature, about books, about library science, about all that kind of stuff, or sending your questions their way, then please check the show notes for a link to that and give Mr. Bonner and his crew some love. So the topic I want to talk about today came from doing something, actually two things, that you should never, ever do. And I'm being a little bit silly here. I'm not actually bashing this game because actually it brought up some really good points to talk about. But first off, I was reading a transcript of it. It was an online game I did not participate in. And I was just reading a transcript of it because uh, someone that I'm good friends with asked me to do so and wanted my opinion on some specific things. And so even though the thing was 127 pages long, I can't believe I actually read that, but I did. And the second thing is this was a lone wolf game. There was a GM and a player. And you know what? That's better than no gaming at all. And for the nature of this game, I'm actually going to grant that it was necessary. It actually, it helps some things. And I don't want to get too much into what it helped exactly because it's, it's kind of personal to these people. And it's really not my place to say. But what I saw in that game that I liked reminded me of something that I had seen in gaming many, many years ago and had forgotten about. Now, for any of you that are a little bit on the young side, or maybe you're not on the young side, but you just didn't pick up video gaming ever, or you didn't pick it up until more modern times, there was a style of gaming back in the 1980s, which was text-based adventure games. And the company that was best known for producing these was a company called Infocom, which ultimately ended up getting consumed into a larger game company. I forget it was Activision or EA, uh, but whatever. Okay, they're, they're not around anymore. They got absorbed. Some of the games they were most famous for making was they made the Zork games, uh, they made Wishbringer, they made Planetfall, uh, they made the Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy game. And the way that these games would work is you would start off and it would give you a paragraph of text describing where you're at and what's going on. Okay, so it might say something like, you've just woken up in the morning, you're in your bedroom, there's light coming in through the windows, the sheets are a mess from a restless night of sleep whatever, and it describes the setting. And then at the end of that, right below it, it's going to list a series of explicit things that you can interact with. For example, it might say something like, you see a bookshelf, a clothes dresser, and a door leading out into the hallway. And when you're playing this game, now ultimately it's kind of like a puzzle game, right? You're going to go around, you're going to walk from place to place, and eventually there's going to be puzzles you're going to solve and things you're going to accomplish. But the entire thing is done completely through text. And everywhere you go, you're going to get these little text leads that tell you what the interactive hooks are of the area. Okay, so there's a door you can walk through to the hallway. There's this dresser. So you might do something like you might type in, it was usually a two-word phrase, so you might say something like open dresser and it would then tell you, oh, inside the dresser, you see a ticket. And then you might write something like get ticket. 
and the ticket would then be added to your inventory. And maybe later on down the road, you need that ticket to get on a bus to go somewhere else or, you know, whatever the puzzle is. When I was reading this transcript, I'm going to give credit where it's due. The game was being run by Ryan Frederick, who's the Dark Lord of Denny's himself and is no stranger to our community. He was doing something along those lines in an open role-playing game where a situation would come up and the person that he was running it for would be put in a scenario. Okay, it might be like she walks into a new place and there's all these people there and he would give some description, and then he would pause. And he didn't do this all the time, but he did this at several key points of the game's development. And he might say something like, you see this person, you see this person, you see a closed cabinet. And so what he did is at the end of that description, he would enumerate, here are some things that you can grab. Here are some buttons you can press. Here are some things in the game world that I want to draw your attention to. Now, if we go back to the Infocom games, sometimes what you needed to do was not apparent in that list of interactable objects. Okay, For example, I mentioned the bedroom. I did not list the window itself as being an object you can interact with. But sometimes they would expect you to do things like figure out on your own, oh, there's something dangerous in the hallway, so you might try open window and find out, oh, actually, I can interact with the window. That is one of the buttons I can push in this world. And so you jump out the window to run away so you don't get eaten by a guru in the hallway. And in the same way, when Ryan would set forth these plot points, at no point did I see him constraining his player to a finite series of choices. And what I mean by that is he might say, well, you see person A who's doing this, person B who's doing that, and a closed cabinet. And these are obvious things a person could do, but if the player said something like, well, I'm going to go do this instead, he didn't stop them, okay? And, and that's a good thing because part of the fun of a role-playing game is having that level of choice, that level of freedom. But I think there are times that that level of choice and that level of freedom can actually get a little bit overwhelming. If you have somebody who's a new player to a role-playing game, and I've seen this many times in my life, so you guys may have seen this as well, the concept that you can do anything is number one foreign because it really doesn't exist in any other form of gaming outside of role-playing games. Board games, video games, they all have finite choices. You can do this or that, but not something the game doesn't account for. And secondly, even with seasoned players, there are times when I think just the sheer volume of choice becomes a little bit confusing if you don't yet have a feel for your character or for the flow of the game. And I've actually been on both sides of this, where I've been running a game and said, okay, here's the scene. This is going on. This is going on. What do you do? And the player isn't sure because they don't know precisely what their actions would result in. They don't know what sounds interesting. Uh, maybe they're not familiar with the setting. They don't really have a feel for their character. And so they've got a lot that's going on in the back of their head. And suddenly the spotlight's on them and they lock up. But I've also been on the other side of that where somebody's come to me and said, all right, all this is going on. What do you do? And I've GM'd long enough to know the GM's sweating at that point. And so I'll typically say something. But a lot of times it doesn't quite feel right. I don't know that I'm always satisfied with the choice that I made. And I don't know if I was less experienced of a gamer if I would feel prepared to make a choice at all. And I don't think, just like anything we talk about on the show, 
this is a one-size-fits-all solution for all of your gaming woes. I'm not suggesting this is the new way to handle anything and everything, but I think you might find that there are times, and I'm going to give you a few that I think are particularly good for this, where telling people some finite things they can do is a great way of making the universe feel much more manageable. Okay, so now you might say, well, you walk into a mall and there's this going on, this going on, this going on, all kinds of stuff. Just think the usual chaos of a mall around the holidays. Somebody that's in that situation could do any number of things. But you could put in front of them and say, there's an electronic store to your right that has a particular item you need to buy for a gift. There's an abandoned baby stroller in front of you with a baby in there crying. And you see a guy who looks kind of suspicious peeking in the windows of one of the stores. All right, three things right here you can do. And you don't have to make up your own action. You don't have to suddenly feel out, well, what is possible in this situation? What would I even want to do? It helps to reduce that feeling of being overwhelmed down to a handful of buttons you can push. And then you can open up the game from there. And I think there are three situations where I have found this most useful. Situation one is with new players. I think with new players, if they're not taking to it, and certainly keep an eye on them, see how quickly they start picking up on things. But if you put something in front of them and they're kind of struggling, then start giving them these finite choices. And you know, maybe you do it for quite a while. And then as they start taking more initiative, as they start feeling more comfortable, you start backing off and backing off and the choices get a little bit more vague or maybe they're not there as often until eventually you've weaned them off of that more or less completely. The second place that I personally would like to see it is at the start of a game. I've played in games where we start in the middle of the action. We're not sitting around a tavern chatting. That's oftentimes hard to work with. But the game master goes to the opposite extreme. I'm up against a wall and somebody has a gun to my head. But I still might have that moment of lockup because it's like, how strong is this guy? How likely is he to pull that trigger? What type of gun is this? What you know, I I don't know really how I'm going to fit into this. And so, if he said something like, "Okay, there's a guy who's got a gun to your head," you think you could either try to smack the gun out of his hand, or you have a weapon of your own, or he's kind of looking around nervous, like he's not sure he wants to do this. Now, I don't have to do any of those things. I could choose to do some fourth, fifth, sixth thing the game master didn't list. But the game master has given me three ideas that I am guessing he or she has planned for and he or she considers to be acceptable outcomes to this situation. And incidentally, I do recommend when you do this, if you're going to make finite choices, please make them generally all workable options. Because if you turn this into multiple choice where every answer but one or two is wrong, then all that happens is your multiple choice becomes just as scary as the essay question of what do you do? So I do recommend making them at least generally workable if you're going to put them out there, or at least something they can get a roll on or whatever. Don't have one of them. I mean, it doesn't need to be like a choose your own adventure where if you turn to page 50, the story goes on. If you turn to page 74, you're done with the book. And then the third time that I think it's useful is when the scene changes. If you switch the action radically, uh, they're in a new place, several days have passed, some kind of break in the action where the previous flow has broken, and what you're trying to do is get people back into the swing of things. Because most players, once they're into the swing of things, they'll keep going on their own, right? One action causes a consequence, the consequence leads to another action, the action leads to another consequence, there's a great flow to it. 
I walk into a room. I talk to this guy. He responds. I say something back. He offends me. We get in a fight. The town guard shows up. I run from the town guard, right? There's a flow to it. But that first step of I walk into the room, right? The scene's changed. Sometimes, depending on the player and depending on the group, it might be useful to give them a finite set of options to pick from. Point out to them the things that are interesting. So you walk into a room, you see a guy sitting by himself at a table looking lonely. You notice the bartender is wearing the emblem of some group you're familiar with. You know, whatever. You just put two, three, four, five things that they can latch on to. And bringing this all back around, I really found it fascinating when I was reading Ryan's game. And there's a lot of things he did right in that game. And I may try to get him on the show here at some point to dissect some of those things. But like I said, there's a dynamic going on there I don't feel totally comfortable getting into on the mics without his presence or permission. But among the things I noticed was as I was reading his game, I loved how it was just so effortlessly slipping back and forth between an open role-playing game and what felt to me like an old Infocom or text-based adventure game right when it needed to. And so I want you guys to think about that. If there's times in your game where your players don't quite seem to have a response, whether immediately or after you've asked that essay question of what do you do, have that in your toolbox lead off with a finite series of choices. Or if you don't lead off with it and they seem to be stumbling, then give them that finite series of choices. Help them out a little bit. Because I think you'll find that once they're more comfortable, once they're more relaxed, once they're more at ease with the choices there, they're going to fall into this and the momentum is going to pick up. There's going to be a lot less scary, right? Because it's suddenly so much more bite-sized in terms of the way that you approach it. And incidentally, I I know this is not going to be news to some of you. There are games out there that actually already do this, that actually give you a more finite series of choices in a situation. Burning Wheel comes to mind as an example of this. Probably an even bigger one that comes to mind, or at least fits what I'm talking about better, is Apocalypse World. The first time I played Apocalypse World, one of the things that I thought was novel, and at first kind of bugged me, but after I played with it, I realized it worked well and was a great idea, was when you're in combat, you have like six or eight things you can do, and they're all listed out for you, and exactly what they will do, and exactly what you'll need to roll is all listed out. And when we got into those situations, I actually found it helped quite a bit, that it really simplified the game down to a point that things felt less chaotic, things felt less overwhelming. So, as with everything we tell you, use this in its perspective, know your group, all that kind of stuff. But anyway, I'm going to figure out what I'm going to do with that Fear the Boot on the AM dial episode uh, sometime between now and at the latest. I'll figure out what I'm going to do with it by next episode. And in the meantime, be sure to also get your entries out there for the Battletech contest. Check out the Library Land podcast, see what they're doing over there. And as always, have a great week and great games, and we will catch you next time. This has been a production of Fear the Boot, copyright 2015. Listeners are free to use this show in any non-commercial endeavor, as long as credit is provided to feartheboot.com. You can find previous episodes and other resources at feartheboot.com. Fear the Boot is also a member of the Pulp Gamer Media Network of Shows. You can find other great shows in this network at pulpgamer.com.